Welcome to the virtual EU Commute. I'm Andreas Marazis. And I'm Rashid Gabulhakov. Together, we will keep you company through a monthly chat in the yurt with a conversation on Europe Central Asia developments. What events are unfolding in Central Asia that Europeans should understand? But also, what developments in Europe are of specific relevance to Central Asia? Together, we discuss societal trends, political developments, and economic terms while also assessing the past and looking ahead at the future. Now, A Chat in the Yurt is a podcast from the EU CAM program of the Center for European Security Studies in the Netherlands. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and sign up to EU CAM News on our website. In today's second podcast the discussion, uh, we are focusing on what's next for Kazakhstan after the successful re-election of President Kasim Jomar Tokayev, with 81.3% of vote in the November 20th uh, SNAP elections. But we want to go beyond the results. We want to look into the renewed attention of the European Union in Kazakhstan and the connectivity approach. We want to understand the sentiments among citizens, including youth, regarding Russia, whether it is about Russia's war in Ukraine or the increased Russian presence in the country and the EU. So our EUR hosts today are Dr. Janibek Arinov, who is an assistant professor at the Graduate School of Public Policy at Nazarbayev <laughs> University, and Kamila Smagulova, who is a researcher and program coordinator at the Public Policy Research Center Paper Lab. Also, she recently completed her fellowship at the UCAM in Groningen, the Netherlands. Kamila and Janibek, a warm welcome to our UCAM yurt. Hello, thank you for inviting. Very glad to be back to UCAM online. In the virtual yurt. Yes, great to see you. It's, a, it's great to have you virtually at least uh, with us today. Um, well, I would like to open uh, our uh, informal discussion, if I may, with a more general question. I would like to ask both of you, and I will start with you, Camilla, uh, to give us uh, like a feeling of how would you evaluate Kazakhstan's foreign policy before and after 2022 uh, events, meaning uh, after the Ukraine war and the January 2022 unrest in Kazakhstan. This would be very, I would say, major spoiler to my commentary that I am to publish, that UCAM is to publish what, of what I've worked on for three months of my fellowship about foreign policy and also especially about peace broker strategy that Kazakhstan has been establishing for a while. And I would say that for now, it is very hard to track because Kazakhstan is in a very difficult situation where external affairs and internal affairs are two different and sometimes very contrasting points, I would say. And as an example, we had January events almost a year ago. And then we had, for example, just, I would try to evaluate this just according to one example. And then for the rest of the year, there would be, mm, very common narrative that Kazakhstan, for example, has to leave CSTO and distant from Russia very much, right? At the same time, recently we discovered that Secretary General of CSTO, elected one, is uh, Imogalitis Magameta, former ambassador to Russia. So at the same time, Kazakhstan hosts, still hosts different international events, and also your commission president has visited and uh, all the presidents, it was the country that Xi Jinping visited after COVID, like the first country, right? So 
multi-vector foreign policy is something that is yet to be challenged. This is what at least I would say. Maybe Ranabek would also add something else here. Yeah. Um... Again, it, it's a bit funny, I think. I mean, personally to me, not the situation in general, that I've been working on uh, foreign policy or international politics in general for quite some time. And lots of my friends, colleagues are always kind of like, oh, why do you work on foreign policy of Kazakhstan? Because it has been stable for over 30 years. I mean, there is nothing new. We always talk about this multi-vector foreign policy, no changes, Russia, US, China, EU, and other countries, and so on and so forth. I've been hearing that kind of um, comments from my colleagues and friends for quite some time. But suddenly this year, lots of things happened. And now foreign policy seems to be the most dynamically changing aspect of uh, policymaking in Kazakhstan in general. Yeah? I mean, well, of course we can speculate about this internal political reforms, about this new Kazakhstan concept, Kazakhstan and so on and so forth, this elections, the power change, the January, but sitting here in Astana, we don't, or at least I personally don't see much of difference uh, compared to the previous years in terms of this domestic political change. But in terms of foreign policy, I do see a huge shift um, uh, in, in Kazakhstan, in Kazakhstan's approach. Uh, but this does necessarily mean that Kazakhstan is reconsidering its uh, close ties. I mean, th this change, uh, first of all, linked to Russia, and Russia's war in Ukraine and Russia's involvement uh, in the, I mean, all CSTO's involvement in the situation in January this year in Kazakhstan. Uh, so it's all about Russia and the, Russia's international behavior. Uh, but I don't think that uh, this change will necessarily uh, lead to this uh, reconsidering of the whole relations with Russia. We will have Russia as the possibly closest uh, partner or the closest country. I mean, that's, that's, something that Kazakhstan cannot uh, kind of escape, I think. This is actually a very interesting point, Janibek, because, you know, reading the headlines in the news, some people are jumping to conclusions that Central Asian states are distancing themselves from Putin, or at least, you know, sending signals to Russia that they're no longer interested um, in partnering with it. So, but from what I hear from you is that this might be premature conclusions. No, no. I mean, saying that Kazakhstan is distancing from Russia or Kazakhstan is uh, kind of aligning with Russia, I think too much uh, oversimplification. I mean, there are lots of nuances. In some cases, we see that Kazakhstan is trying to resist this huge pressure from Russia. I mean, huge pressure, because I mean, if you talk to diplomats or to other people involved in relations with Russia, I mean, the one thing you constantly hear from all people kind of uh, in I mean, who have this direct, I would say, uh, access to this relations. All they say that, oh, Kazakhstan is facing tremendous pressure from Russia uh, on the UN General Assembly resolution that, uh, I mean, a couple of days ago, I guess, uh, that demanded from Russia uh, the withdrawal of all troops from Ukraine. And Kazakhstan did not abstain. Kazakhstan uh, voted against that uh, resolution. And I think, I mean, that's there we see some elements of this pressure. But in general, again, the relations with Russia are not the same as it, they used to be a year ago. Uh, Kazakhstan is trying to balance against uh, some of the initiatives Russia is doing. But at the same time, 
Um, it's not saying that oh, we're going to distance ourselves from Russia, so we can escape that. And we will build new relations with Central Asians, with Turkey, with the EU, with the US, whoever, with China. No, that's not happening. I mean, that's impossible uh, in practice. I also wonder how this dynamic works and between foreign policy and domestic perceptions of it, since we made kind of this conceptual differentiation that, you know, there is stability on the domestic scene, yet a kind of flux or renegotiation of positions on the on the foreign policy. I wonder if somebody could elaborate on this dynamic on the ground perception and yeah? how are people reacting in Kazakhstan to these well, shifts or renegotiations? It has mentioned that there was no major shift in foreign policy trajectories of a country where we can see not a major, but more or less of a shift is the way it is now perceived domestically, because there is huge threat now very close to people who were never interested in politics, right? In general, we have relatively, I would say parochial uh, political culture. When I talk about political culture here, I mean civic participation. And what we hear from what we see and what, what we may observe after February 24th is that people are trying to get interested, trying not to at least get involved, but like observe whatever is going around. And especially when direct impact on their daily life is out there, it's inevitable that they would be interested in foreign policy and they would be following news. And I would say on grassroots, of course, there would be need to rate, like they want to be aware of what is going on outdoors, I would say. I just wanted to follow up very quickly on what uh, uh, Camilla said. I mean, and it's very much linked to a question that I had in mind. I mean, for uh, normal, you know, Kazakh citizens who are who care mainly about like you know their well-being and uh, have enough uh, to raise their family and so on, what is key for them to have stability? And it's, this is very much in line with uh, the EU's approach towards uh, uh, resilience and stability uh, in in Central Asia. But what this means uh, practically for, for Kazakhs? I mean, what, what is stability for them? That's a good question. Maybe I will try to indirectly answer your question, maybe, yeah. Uh, so just a couple of weeks ago, um, Demoscope in Kazakhstan made a survey on Kazakhstan's attitudes towards the war in Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, interestingly, I think this is the first uh, a good quality survey, I would say, on the matter, uh, in Kazakhstan at least. Uh, I mean, we had one in June by a Central Asia Barometer, but the, the, the findings are not um, accessible, if I'm not mistaken. But this one, at least in Kazakhstan, the, the best, uh, I mean, one of the few, and in terms of quality methodology, I mean, uh, there are less concerns. So the, the survey finds that 23% or 21% in Kazakhstan uh, support Ukraine. 13% support uh, Russia, but the majority do not choose either of the sides. When it comes to the Kazakhstan's uh, opinions on Kazakhstan's, uh, how Kazakhstan should behave in this situation. Again, the majority prefers a more kind of neutral balancing or acting Kazakhstan as a uh, peace uh, broker, right? So I think this, uh, is very interesting because the majority in Kazakhstan, they don't want to have or give at least these clear answers to what's going on in Russia, what's going on with Russia and in Ukraine, right? I mean, for, for the majority, um, having this, uh, having no answer or kind of staying in their comfort zones and not answering those kind of difficult questions, I mean, that's uh, the, the preferred way. 
So I don't see I don't think that uh, this kind of kind of change in the future. But uh, at least uh, when it comes to bigger cities, or in Almaty, in Astana, we see the people being more active when it comes to foreign policy, right? I mean, people discussing or bringing up the issues related to CSEO membership, to the origin of the membership in the origin uh, uh, union, and this uh, votings in UN assembly. Um, again, that attracts a lot of attention in here, at least among certain groups, which. I don't remember anything happening in the past, I mean, similar to that. So in that sense, again, among certain groups in Kazakhstan, this awareness or the interest in foreign policy issues uh, have increased. When it comes to the stability, again, this indicate, I think this, the, for the recent survey also indicated that the majority, for the majority in Kazakhstan, they would rather prefer kind of staying neutral. Um, in that way, kind of having the same stability maybe they have at the moment, rather than choosing the signs, kind of going against Russia or gay, choosing Ukraine or whatever. So for the majority, I think the staying neutral and living their comfort lives is the best preferred way at the moment. Yeah, and and I, really I interpret that that way. It is also important for Kazakhstan that <clears throat> slightly over a month ago before uh, Russian invasion to Ukraine, there was January events, right, in Kazakhstan. And for sure, this was one of those External, no, internal factors that would maybe sh like shackle the sense of stability. Because at Paperlock, for example, we did the research on how citizens of Kazakhstan perceive 30 years of independence. A uh, very important disclaimer here that we did this research about uh, like two months before January. So it was like fall 2021. And what we noticed there that stability, when we talk about stability, it's mostly elder generation, like people above 50, who would prefer stability over political freedom, human rights, democracy, and et cetera. So for them, for example, even in Kazakh, we have this wish of like, when we wish a clear sky to each other, right? And I think it's not only in Kazakh that it is very popular. So for people, the value of this peace and stability has been very, very sacred, I would say. But here, like trying to, um, evaluate how it is changed after January and February would be very hard because once again, there are not much of researches of surveys to like refer to at the same time. From my perspective is now I think there's very big debate of what is stability. So would people be choosing their better socioeconomic conditions? For example, having almost 20 or even more percent of inflation now and people living really worse than they used to or trying to fight for their uh, like for their civil liberties and right for fair elections and so on. So I think these are now two different sides of one coin that I think we need to reconsider. Camilla, you mentioned like an interesting target group, like you, you mentioned like 50 plus, and immediately comes to my mind, okay, this is a generation that experienced tension, experienced instability, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, and there is the other side of the coin that says there is a big group of people who didn't experience any of that, or at least they don't have memories of that. So what are the perceptions of that target group about like what is stability for them and you how mean, willing they are to fight for, you know, for this stability? I would maybe go back shortly to Demoscope a survey that Janivek has already mentioned that... Mm -hmm most of those who would support Ukraine are youth, right? So when we talk about people who would maybe strive for change in a little bit more different way without having 
direct connection to like some past historic events and their collective memory is different. So they would have, they are maybe the descendants of those who experienced that in the past. And here I would be very biased because I do belong to this generation. I was born in 1997. So I lived in relatively peaceful times. At the same time, we all have like generational memory of what has happened. And this is very interesting because once again, there is no big survey conducted in Kazakhstan right now in terms of uh, youth and their willingness to go and fight because whatever has happened and whatever any surveys have shown before January and February, I think would be changed afterwards. So now we see very different trends. Of course, in the bubble where we live, there would be people who would try to advocate for democracy, for like changes. At the same time, we have youth who do believe in very positive outcome of reforms and so on. I would say polarization in terms of values and in terms of expectations, uh, no generation is immune to that. So it's not only about youth or like elderly trying to experience this. Yeah, but I would say it's it's also very polar by saying that all youth is very pro-Ukrainian and would uh, expect democracy to happen or would fight for fair elections or 100% of youth would want to observe, let's say, elections and become independent observers and so on, would be not really correct thing to say. I would say they're also very polarized. There would be some of them who would be very politically and socially active trying to bring different changes at the same time there would also be those who would prefer staying neutral and not to command because they value their own peace and safety and stability as well then beg you wanted to yeah. comment on that yeah. sorry i took just, uh... <laughs> it's fine so just a brief um, kind of additional point to what kamala has said um okay that's a that's come from from very personal subjective experience i think after january uh, I've seen many people, at least, uh, who said, who started kind of valuing the stability more than they used to in the past, because again, the January events for them showed the, how chaotic the things may uh, become, right? And people, I've met so many people um, saying, oh, I mean, it's better, um, I mean, uh, having stability rather than things that happened during the January, right? Maybe you don't find, uh, I mean, we live, uh, me, I think maybe uh, Camilla as well, we live in a small, in our small bubble in Astana and Almaty where we have this active society. We belong, I mean, we have these Twitter accounts, we have these Facebook accounts, we, part, we are the part of this, possibly the discussion in general going on about this political change in Kazakhstan. But to me, again, unfortunately, the majority of, for the population, I think they are apolitical when it comes to domestic. And uh, democracy may mean to those people very different things than uh, to us. I mean, at least to me. I mean, that's my, again, subjective uh, kind of impression or experience uh, that I had since January. So unfortunately, again, we can't judge uh, about this trends based on Astana or Almat for social media like Twitter uh, or Facebook or other, other uh, platforms. We are foreshadowing a topic of connectivity here in a way, and that's actually one of the uh, subjects we wanted to focus on. So maybe we could already address this issue of, well, connectivity, but also maybe the disconnect. Could you elaborate on that? You've already mentioned the role of social media, but maybe also traditional media and other linguistic or geographical factors 
that then contribute to this to the creation of these bubbles and the polarization that you've already mentioned. Uh, Rashid, can I clarify connectivity? You mean across region, across central Asia, like across central In this Asia. case, human connectivity inside of Kazakhstan, yeah, between different different uh, well age groups, people uh, in urban versus more rural areas, linguistic or anything else that you might think of. I mean, whenever we talk about connectivity, to me there is also immediately a thought of the disconnect. Yeah? So, what are some of the factors that contribute to the disconnect? But also, maybe we can focus on on things that that are connecting people. It's good. But it, yeah, but it appears that January and February twenty fourth are currently one of those factors, internal factors and external factors that would uh, create different ways for society to polarize. And when we talk about connectivity and disconnect, like disconnection, there would be, I maybe it's my like since my research interests and also my personal interest, I would say, is related to national identity and nationalism, I would maybe uh, shift to that very often. And also like decolonization, decolonial narrative that is so popular in Kazakhstan nowadays. It is like so popular that people would not even understand or try to unravel what is decolonization. They would be suggesting events like decolonization in economics, decolonization and energy security and things like that. So it is very interesting that there are a lot of uh, factors for people to get connected and to get disconnected. And one of those, I think, uh, topics would be identity and reassessment of identity. Not, I would say, building new identity. No, I think I think just asking questions, trying to find answers. And I think this is that some connecting factor for Kazakhstan in terms of language, big uh, I would say big factor, and also in terms of geography, because I think as all Central Asian countries, right, there would be very huge differences between South and North and West and East, etc. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have much to add to this because again, I don't have the numbers how it works. But again, this—I uh, mean, if you are asking my subjective kind of feelings again, uh, so I think, um, okay, what unites all people? I think the majority of the population covered is that many of them understand that some changes are needed in society, political, economic, in terms of justice, social justice, and so on and so forth. That's the uniting point for the majority. But when it comes to instruments, how are you gonna achieve that? I think um, the people have different opinions in different parts of the country. Uh, and again, we've mentioned this, um, the, the more liberal or more, or democratic, let's say, social movements in Astana and Almaty. But I, unfortunately, I haven't seen the same kind of movements in Mangastal or, for instance, I'm in from the in the region where I come from in Shumkent. There are movements, there are social activists, but um, their vision uh, of the future of the change is a bit different uh, from what uh, pro liberal, uh, I would say, activists or the scholars say. One common thing, which is the need for changes, but how you're gonna achieve that change? I mean, the people's uh, visions or perceptions of that seems to be different um, based on different kind of factors, including age, maybe including the region, no representativeness, including uh, including other things. Uh, yeah, but I don't have any numbers, unfortunately, to, to confirm this. Yeah, well, what Genevieve has mentioned about the way, for example, it's perceived in terms of like grassroots movements, let's say in the west of Kazakhstan or south, and very uh, 
pro-democratic, liberal, urban, whatever you call it, bubbles in big cities are different. And I like what comes to my mind is article of uh, Kazakh scholar, Nafisa Insibayeva. I think she wrote a piece for Central Asia program about different languages of youth activism in Kazakhstan. So I think for those who would be listening to us, I would recommend reading this. This is a very interesting piece, with, which would, I think, touch up a little bit upon what Genevieve has mentioned. Nice, thank you so much. Thanks, Camille. If we can stay a little bit longer into the connectivity part now that we, Rasid actually opened the floor about this. There's a lot of buzz around connectivity, and I'm not talking about human connectivity, uh, in Brussels and in Central Asia. So as part of the global effort to help mitigate the socioeconomic uh, impact of the new geopolitical context, several key events took place, as you probably are well aware, like the number uh, November 18th uh, Summer Camp Conference on Connectivity, uh, of course, uh, the November 8th uh, EU-Kazakhstan Memorandum of Understanding that was signed between uh, uh, Kazakhstan and the EU on uh, uh, raw materials. And it seems that the EU is seeking out Kazakhstan as the main country to go around Russia. How is this viewed? I mean, I would like, of course, your, your opinion, but also if there is any discussion or buzz around this uh, uh, events or these agreements between Kazakhstan and the EU uh, in the university, for example, Zanibek, or among your colleagues, Camilla, uh, I would like to, to get a little bit a general feeling of how is this perceived? Well, maybe I just uh, kick off. Uh, yeah, connectivity is a password, especially when it comes to EU relations with other regions. And I here see two dimensions of EU connectivity in Central Asia. First of all, the connectivity between EU and Central Asia, which is the most difficult part, I guess, in terms of many, um, given many, many other factors, I will elaborate on this. And the second part is connectivity among five Central Asian countries. And the EU is pushing, has been pushing uh, the both dimensions, right? Uh, I was in Brussels uh, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, and then the connectivity was in the air, I would say. Uh, in, in Brussels. But the problem with the connectivity between EU and Central Asia is that it requires a lot of uh, financial support, it requires a lot of uh, the political will, right? Uh, at this time, it seems to be that the parties are discussing how they can um, improve, for instance, energy connectivity, transport connectivity, digital connectivity between Central Asia and the EU. There are certain initiatives uh, on those dimensions, the people-to-people -people connectivity. Uh, but I don't at least at the moment see the kind of um, this connectivity project, a global gateway uh, being a major uh, transformative factor in the EU Central Asia relations, unfortunately. Maybe it will come in a year, in five years, in 10 years, I don't know, it requires time. Uh, but at this moment, discussions are there, but in terms of practical implementation, uh, many things are not uh, clear yet. When it comes to connectivity among Central Asian countries, again, the EU has been initiating different um, uh, projects, programs, initiatives in that direction, so the, I think the most uh, recent one being uh, this uh, Daria, for instance, uh, project, right, on vocational training in Central Asian countries. I mean, we have all these projects on border cooperation, on water cooperation, climate change, and this kind of stuff. And, the, well, I mean, we can, uh, I mean, discuss the, the, the impact of those projects, but at, at least... Um, those projects are still uh, still there, and it seems that they will be increasing in number in terms of the funding and so on and so forth. But 
uh, we need to understand that there are some um, more significant uh, problems to connectivity issues in Central Asia and between Central Asia and the EU. And I'm not sure to what extent the parties will be able to overcome those barriers. Yeah, this is, I would, I would be very frank here that it is also not very easy and I don't, I'm not sure if I would be able to give like more extended answers than Janibek, but still when we talk about like three main pillars they've mentioned in Samarkand, right, the digital connectivity or transport or energy. For now, it appears that energy would be like, considering all vagueness and uncertainty that is around that. There might be energy connectivity that EU would be focusing on and also something that for Kazakhstan, if Kazakhstan is to be perceived as a way for EU to bypass Russia, right? So in this case, of course, at the same time, discussions on, let's say, Middle Corridor, Trans-Caspian Route or all projects like that have been there for a while and actions have been taken or not, that's a question I would maybe ask. Yeah, otherwise, otherwise, yeah, there are more questions than answers for me, I'd say. And one interesting thing about the EU's connectivity compared to China's connectivity project is that nobody in wider society talks about the EU's connectivity project. I'm not sure that many people are aware of uh, the EU's projects. I mean, we're talking about this wider population, right? EU's projects about global gateway or about other kind of uh, the, the, the project that the EU is doing in the region, at least in Kazakhstan. Uh, when it comes to China, the majority of the people seem to know about the BRI project, or at least that the China is doing something out there. So I think that's a big difference when it comes to EU and China. Actually, well, one of the reasons why this podcast exists is actually you know, to to bring the two re- is to bring the two regions closer to each other. Because what we also observe in our discussions, uh, daily discourses that we are faced with, is that there is little knowledge and understanding of what Central Asia is here in Europe and maybe vice versa on the ground in Central Asia. Yeah. Perhaps we could then quickly discuss the dimension that is often ignored, unfortunately, but this kind of people-to-people connectivity, the educational domain, the more informal domain, you know, tourism, culture, all those important things that sit beneath of the visible part of the iceberg yet constitute, I think, the major and important part. Well, Camila, for instance, you recently finished your fellowship at the uh, CES at UCAM. Could you elaborate on that? And Jean Beck, well, if, if there is value in these kinds of um, well, connectivity programs, and Jean Beck, of course, <coughs> feel free to jump in and with the discussion on um, value important on even that's, that's the role of these people to people, education, and these types of connectivity as well. And if I may add an extra layer to that question, uh, by Rashid, how visible are these connectivity opportunities, the opinion, um, people-to-people connectivity opportunities? How visible they are compared to other educational exchanges, for example, existing uh, with China or with other partners, with Russia, etc.? Yeah, that would be very interesting questions. I will try to touch upon both of them. Uh, when it comes to human-to-human connectivity and UCAM's role, like, like this fellowship's role in that, of course, there would be huge contribution because we would be visiting from Central Asia as someone who would bring some primary resource, like primary source information. At the same time, we would be trying to juxtapose of what we have read and studied in theory. And then, for example, we get a chance to go to Brussels and listen to them. Also, of course, there would be very 
um, important things to see, for example, for us as Central Asians, that Central Asia, let's say, it's not Eastern Bloc, right? It's not one of the top priorities for the EU. Uh, at the same time, there are energy issues and climate change that are appear to be on the, on the agenda. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I would maybe jump to what Andreas asked about uh, visibility, to what extent is visible. And this is also what Johnny Beck has earlier mentioned, that it is very small population, like strata of population that would be aware of that. And of course, like programs related, like some EU grants, let's say, they are very, there's huge information asymmetry here. It's not that it's accessible for everyone, not because there is no meritocracy or something. This is about accessibility of information, like uh, capacity of accessing this grants or being aware of them is something I would maybe mention here. Mm-hmm. And of course it does contribute to EU Central Asia. And of course, like in terms of trying to compare what is here, what is there and bring it to the EU and ask your questions. For example, for me, it was very important to see that out of everything, let's say January events, that that was something that I was asked most often. And now I can see, yes, for example, January events was not on the agenda and it cannot be compared to whatever, uh, to what is going on in Ukraine, right? At the same time, we can see firsthand that it is something that raises questions. Uh, But I would say that there's very limited number of people in our countries that would have access to this and would have, like, would, would be given any information about that. Yeah, so can we talk about very global human to human connectivity across regions? This is something, by global, I mean something that would cover a lot of people. I would not be very sure about this. To add to Camilla's point, um, to me personally, um, the human to human connectivity part of the EU's general strategy is uh, the most successful one, I think. Um, uh, and uh, at least we can see some impact, uh, personally, me maybe, uh, from these initiatives, uh, at least in Kazakhstan, because if you look at the numbers, uh, Kazakhstan's um, students from Kazakhstan or the faculty members from university in Kazakhstan, they are the, those ones who utilize the Erasmus Plus and other plus and other uh, projects the most, right? I mean, among all Central Asian uh, countries, I mean, more than half of the, the seats uh, are taken by, uh, by students from Kazakhstan. But at the same time, if we can, and Kazakhstan also has this Bolashak scholarship, which is mostly Western oriented. I mean, the majority of students uh, who are on Bolashak, they either prefer uh, some of the EU countries or the UK or US, generally the West uh, rather than Russia or China. Uh, but the thing is that uh, we now see have two may other or maybe three other alternatives when it comes to maybe uh, the education, higher education, yeah, uh, the students exchange. The first one is China. Uh, Kazakhstan is in the top 10 uh, countries uh, who send the students to China. So annually we have around 15,000 students from Kazakhstan studying in China. And Chinese uh, scholarships are very generous. And they cannot compare, can be, they cannot be compared to the EU scholarships, which is normally one semester or maximum two years. I and mean, normally those Chinese scholarships are, um, I mean, include the, the, the language courses, one year, two year, and then the bachelor's degree, uh, three and four years. So in total, you have to, you spend there six years. Uh, and then we had Russia, what we had, so have maybe Russia as a, um, a 
attractive destination uh, for higher education, but I'm not sure how this is going to change after the war. Um, possibly we'll see some change. So the EU is not the, what I'm saying that the EU is not the most obvious option for many uh, um, students, at least in, in the youth representatives in Kazakhstan. Of course, if there is, I mean, I personally, Think that if there is a choice between China and the, some of the European countries, uh, it seems to me that the majority would choose the EU country. But the thing is that the EU is doesn't offer as many seats as China does. Or if you go uh, on a paid kind of basis, I mean, if you pay for your tuitions, I mean, it's better going, it's cheaper going uh, to China than to any of the EU countries. So in that sense, I think. Um, there is more uh, things to be done. So, I mean, we had this conversation about opening maybe a kind of European university in one of the Central Asian the countries like this OEC Academy. That would be a great initiative, I think, if you think that, um, that this human to human uh, connectivity or the quality of education in general uh, is a priority for the for the EU. Definitely. Well, as a, as a Central Asian, you know, working in the Western academia, in this case, in the Netherlands, I can relate to this fact that it's more exclusive in the sense that it's expensive. There are very few scholarship opportunities for Central Asia and also to instrumentalize the uh, anti-colonialism uh, that Camila brought up. In many ways, when it comes to Central Asian studies, unfortunately, the departments, the schools, they're all tied up to the greater Eurasia or to Russian studies. So if we want to build meaningful connections in science, in exchanges, in education, then um, more departments that focus specifically on Central Asia would need to open up. And I think that the uh, exchanges and educational opportunities would need to be seriously accelerated. Otherwise, it is just uh, empty talk, in my opinion. Uh, Andreas, I have I have one final question. I mean, I I don't want this to be sound as if I'm asking like uh, recommendations uh, from you, Camilla and Zanberg. But if you had to share with us the first thought that comes in your mind, in terms of how would you expect the EU? I mean, what would you expect the EU to do to improve their visibility when it comes to people to people connectivity? I mean, some ideas maybe that you can share from other. Uh, 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 partners are other countries who are visible more than the EU in the region. What what could the EU do better when it comes to communicating these opportunities and making them more attractive? Like maybe quickly, like one or two thoughts each. Sanibek, would you like to go first and then Camilla? If I answer this question, I would get the Nobel, oh, I know, some kind of award from, from <laughs> the EU, I think, that, because the problem, the, the, the visibility problem of the EU is not just in Central Asia, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. The, the, I mean, the EU is aware of this, but I think that uh, um, many of the projects that the EU has are mostly directed towards very specific groups, NGOs, expert groups, or technical uh, kind of consulting, this kind of stuff, right? I mean, if you want to have visibility, um, you need to have something tangible that people can see, people can kind of touch, and people can, I don't know, kind of smell or whatever, right? Uh, so, and the cheapest, I think, and the most impactful would be, I think, again, the building a kind of university um, in one of the central Asian. It doesn't matter, be it the Tashke, in Tashkent, or be it in Bishkek, or be it in Shumkent, Asana, whatever, but a kind of university. And it doesn't require much uh, financial resources from the EU, I mean, compared to all those big, uh, fancy infrastructure uh, projects. So, uh, I mean, uh, so I think that would add uh, 
tremendously to the EU's visibility and also in impact in Central Asia. But I would add something, this would be less tangible and less, I would even say, I think those people who get a chance to get to EU and study, as I mentioned, this is a very small portion of population. And what is important is raising awareness for people who do not have access to that. There is very, like when we talk about meritocracy, for example, meritocracy is not 100% fair, right? So there are still a lot of people in Kazakhstan, uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and Turkmenistan who are just deprived of those opportunities because of uh, lack of uh, opportunities, right? Uh, like inequality in education. I mean. And what I always try to advocate for is for experts, uh, that's very exclusive way of saying, but experts, whoever has got EU grants to be out there in public and talk about what they have done and try to increase, raise awareness, try to say what they are studying in a way that would be very understandable for general public. I know this is something that most people would not be interested in. And of course, it will not be very practical result. But at the same time, by small, very step-by-step -step actions, going out in the media and try to be more visible, try to raise awareness among people, that would be the case. But I think maybe let's say podcasts like yours, you would still keep network with uh, your fellows, for example, right, from the region. And I think there would be resources required to that, maybe some joint projects, of alumni of those projects, uh, like of such scholarships and EU or EU think tanks that would try to raise awareness on grassroots. I don't know to what extent this is feasible, but for me, it appears one of those very small solutions we could suggest. No, thank you, Camilla. I would agree with this. And I would, in fact, suggest to do the same here in the EU, but, uh, you know, by Central Asians, uh, something that can be can you know valorizing knowledge, spreading science in a, in a more unconventional ways, you know, and maybe with the, with the involvement of different institutions, individual initiatives. Somehow it should be more organized. What comes to mind, of course, I'm already thinking about spring now, Rus celebrations, you know, cooking sumalak together, in getting involved in these rituals, and in the process teach people about the region as well, because. Here, I observe that anything east of Berlin becomes terra incognita for people, and there is very little understanding and very little knowledge still. And so I would say that this is a dynamic that should definitely work both ways. Maybe I will just add one point. That comes from my PhD thesis, I mean, the research that I did for my PhD degree. Uh, the many of these NGOs, experts, the local NGOs, are placed in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, um, NGOs, experts, activists, and others were campaigning about the EU, was that the EU delegations in, in these countries, they have a kind of list of their favorites, right? I mean, the NGOs or the experts that they work with. And the doors of the, the projects or the, of the embassies or the delegation, EU delegation uh, in the delegations in the region, uh, they are close to those who are not in the list. So if you look at those NGOs, the same NGOs have been getting the funding the from the EU, the, for the same grants and so on and so on. If you look at the experts who talk on the EU Central Asia Council, the same experts uh, being invited in the same panels and articulating the same 10 years, 15, 20 years old ideas about these kind of things. 
Uh, and uh, recently, um, Karolina Kuchevska and Alek Kernev published a good article on uh, in Central Asian uh, survey on the EU, including the EU delegations and how they act. And they describe the EU delegation Central Asia as fortress, right? The kind of uh, the castle with big gates, and it's very difficult to get access uh, to those delegations. I mean, I personally had that experience, but that was five, seven years ago when it was extremely difficult to get access to EU delegation for research purposes. Everyone was saying no. I mean, we are not interested, and which is very much contrasted. Uh, I mean, different from the the headquarters in Brussels. They are quite open. You just email them. They, I mean, if you kind of agree on time, they uh, invite you, and they talk. Uh, we can talk about everything. But here, delegations, I think, uh, need to improve the way how they work and how the way how they uh, engage with local actors in the region. So, and then try to expand and try to invite uh, certain alternative voices or certain kind of other groups uh, in their activities. Definitely. And so there are two important points and they're of course mutually informing. So the first one, and this is something I uh, lobby for continuously is the, the immediate need or in changing focus because Jenny Beck, I share your pain. Year after year, you listen to conferences or you read, you know, the announcements for conferences. And like you said, the same people discussing the same topics. So a, a change in topics is important. But that in itself will also lead, I think, to a different type of um, relations. Or maybe it can be a product of a shift in, in the way these relations are established. So there is definitely a dynamic. Thank you so much for sharing these points. It's, it's definitely a point for another podcast discussion because it's quite huge. And thank you for raising that topic anyway, Zanibek. Uh, I totally agree with Ideally you. Ideally with someone from the EU delegations, yeah, so that they can see. Why some... not? Exactly, exactly. Very good uh, assist, I would say, Zanibek. <laughs> So unfortunately, we we cannot uh, uh, cover this topic now, but uh, we'll have a chance to maybe uh, address it in another podcast. That was the last uh, uh, podcast for uh, 2022, the last uh, chat in the yurt. I would like to take the opportunity to thank both uh, uh, Camila and Zanibek for taking the time to join us. Thank you really for your virtual uh, participation and your uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. That was great. It was amazing. Thank you so much. So such Thank you. answers again. Each line can be a separate podcast. Thank you, Camila. Thank you, Jean-Dibek. Thank you for joining us in today's discussion. And that was your monthly chat in the Europe podcast treat on EU Central Asia developments. Thank you very much. And since we are uh, close to uh, Christmas and New Year's Eve, I would like uh, to wish you all the best for the festive period and a happy new year. Happy new year. Happy New Year!